are listening to Win Win, a podcast brought to you by the global nonprofit organization Win Women in Innovation. Each episode features inspiring innovators from the startup world, innovation consultancies, and Fortune 500 companies who share their innovation secrets and career trajectories every Monday. As for me, I'm your host, Zoya Kozakov, global product lead at Win by Night and product manager by day. As a podcast host, I think that all episodes are like my children, meaning that you're not really supposed to pick favorites. Of course, I think there has been such tremendous value from every episode of this podcast, but I can genuinely say that I left my conversation with Vanessa remembering exactly why I host this podcast. Vanessa Liu has had a 20-plus year tenure in creation, innovation, building, and technology. Whether it's her 13 years of growth consulting at McKinsey in Amsterdam, London, and New York, or launching a digital media venture fund and co-founding two portfolio companies within them that were later sold, or building out SAP's accelerator, SAP.io, Vanessa has so much to offer to our listeners and, frankly, the world. Today, she is back to being a founder and tackling one of the most fascinating areas of innovation and life, ageism. You'll hear her talk all about it, but there are so many layers when it comes to getting older and the various stages of your life and what that means. And even in this conversation, you'll hear Vanessa challenge the stereotypes that I myself grapple with. And she has such novel ideas about this subject matter that I genuinely believe that she's going to turn the world upside down with what she's doing. And she's already done so much in her career until this point. I could go on and on about Vanessa, but I will let you hear the episode for yourself, and I look forward to the conversations that you will be having with your own peers in relation to some of the major learnings in this episode, because outside of ageism and that space, I had Vanessa do a bit of a rapid fire for some founder best practices, since I know that's a hot topic and a big area of her expertise too. So without further ado, here is Vanessa Liu. Hi, Vanessa. Welcome to the Win-Win Podcast. Hi, Zoya. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to have you for so many reasons, but especially because when I was first introduced to you, I knew you as someone who was overseeing SAP.io foundries in North America, which are SAP's accelerators for B2B startups. But today you are a builder and a founder yourself, which is a huge change. Before we dive into what you are building and why, I'd love to hear about the first time you went from a large-scale corporation, McKinsey, to then building out a digital media venture fund, Trigger Media, and co-founding two portfolio companies within it. At that time, in 2011, what enabled you to first take that plunge? That's a really good question because in hindsight, just thinking about that plunge, it's like, wow, you know, that was like a really big step to take. But in truth, at the moment, it felt like the most natural thing to do. I had been at McKinsey, which was really my first foray into a professional setting after college and law school. And I was there for a good long period of time, for about nine and a half years, almost 10 years, working with our media and technology clients to help them build businesses in the digital space to launch. And after doing that again and again, I just knew that I wanted to continue business building, but instead of handing businesses back to clients to run, I wanted to run the businesses myself. So it was a very, very natural step to take. I didn't think of it as a, oh, I'm going from a large company to a small company. I just felt like 
I'm going from launching businesses, which I can come up with and diligence them and get it to a certain place, but not running it after a while to, oh, okay, I'll be coming up with the businesses and launching them. But this time I get to keep them and the buck stops with me and my team. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When you think about consulting, or I think when most people think about consulting, one of the really big appeals of going into consulting is the range of industries, the range of projects you get to be put on. And I mean, let's call a spade a spade. Sometimes when you're put on a project that you don't love, you then have the ability to switch things up. Suddenly, you are not only the owner or the co-founder of these ventures, but really, you know, if you switch out, it kind of ends there. Was there anything about that that maybe <laughs> scared you or like excited you? It was, so for me, it was, um, it was a conscious choice not to just go to one company and to just start one company from scratch. Like I wanted an opportunity where I can have a couple of at-bats. And so here I teamed up with a business partner to, launch trigger media and the whole idea was that we were going to launch several companies in this space starting with a business model that he knew really well which was email newsletters and that was what was intriguing to me i felt like okay we can have different at bats we could see if it works we could tweak it and relaunch something else and and learn from that and so that was something that i felt like enabled me to keep the portfolio approach to my career. And it's actually something that I've kept on with me going forward. And it's, it's funny, because I've been thinking about that a lot. At what point will I ever feel comfortable just putting all my eggs in one basket? I probably will never feel fully comfortable doing that. That gives me a little bit of like hope because people are always telling me, oh, you have a podcast and you're in all these nonprofits and you have your job. Don't you want to like focus on something? It's it's not about focus. It's about the fact that I know that not every single part of, you know, the, the components in my pie of life is going to serve me all at once in the best way. So I always, I I try to keep my eggs in multiple baskets. So it's promising that you've made a very impressing career out of that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think it's really important to have, you know, a portfolio approach to life and to diversify. You know, that's something that investors are always talking about. Like basically the secret to having great returns is to have a diversified portfolio. And I think when it comes to your life, it's really important to have that approach as well. So that's great that you're doing that. Yeah, no, I I appreciate that. When you talk about starting multiple companies at once, right? So you are overseeing multiple companies, but I'm curious about actually operationalizing those companies, starting with the fact that I'm assuming you had to hire for all those different companies and find that talent. I mean, today we are in a very crazy time when it comes to talent and finding it and keeping it. But even at that time, I can imagine starting multiple ventures at once, you really had to have a good group of people to tap into. So how did you approach that side of things? So when we first started Trigger Media, we were we knew what the first company was going to be we had an inkling about what the second business was going to be. And luckily, my business partner, Andy Russell, had already found the first CEO for the first business in John Keaton, who now runs Torch Capital, by the way. And so we knew going in that the type of person that we wanted to have at the helm and what the value proposition was and having a very clear idea about that. I think when it comes to starting new businesses, right? It's there, there are several different components. It's one is 
obviously the idea is it in a market where the total addressable market is sizable enough so that it will be interesting and is the concept at hand one that is distinctive so you can carve out something special in it and own a particular part of that segment and then finally the team and so when you're starting things you are you know bringing those components together and because we were able to get a stellar team early on, we were able to start thinking about the second business pretty early on as well. And so we lucked out and also found an initial CEO for that business too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And this is really like, if you think about the types of models out there and thinking about how do you start companies, this is about finding those ideas that are big enough and then finding the most natural and most talented basically people operators who can run the businesses and being very strict about that. And I feel like you almost answered my question ahead of time because I do feel like even though you were, quote, on that building side already at that time, by asking yourself all those questions and searching for the right people, to me that sounds like, you know, straight out of the book venture capital skills. But after 13 years at McKinsey and then almost another seven years in this more entrepreneurial builder mindset, you joined SAP to work on the other side of the startup space. So venture and that whole ecosystem is notoriously hard to get into, especially for women and especially for women of color. So how did that opportunity come about? Yeah, so at when I was at Trigger, we were part investors, part operators. Like we were deploying capital that our investors had given to us. So I had a little bit of the investing side um, mm-hmm. in terms of a little bit of the experience, even though we were deploying it into our own ideas. But we also made some side investments as well. And towards the end of my time, I felt like there were a couple of things missing after starting a company, a a great company, Inside Hook is the name of the company, which we eventually sold. It was um, a media property focused on men 30 to 55. And the second company that we launched is called Fivo. It's now a Series C company. It powers the group ticketing for about 80% of the professional sports teams in the US. I love these companies, but I felt like something was missing and I really had to ask myself what was missing. Well, in the first business, I was helping guys figure out what to do mm-hmm. with their money. The second company, I was entertaining people. There, Those are great businesses, but it wasn't really scratching the need that I've always had for impact from a purpose level. And I also had a lot of women and people of color coming to me when I was at Trigger wondering if we could potentially partner or actually be investors. And I saw that again and again and again. And I also saw that I was getting those calls and my business partner who is a white Caucasian male wasn't getting that. And I saw firsthand the disparity in the market. So I wanted to work primarily with underrepresented founders in the next phase of my career. So I was putting out some feelers after we had deployed our capital a trigger just to see what was out there. And I was actually thinking about launching something, just a fund dedicated for underrepresented founders when I got recruited by SAP. So I was incredibly lucky. Somebody in my network said, actually, you know, SAP is thinking about launching an accelerator it looks like they would like it to be focused on women in the first instance and underrepresented founders overall, would you be interested in talking? And I remember thinking like, well, I'm not so sure I want to run my own thing. I don't know if I want to go back to a big company right now and just like one company. 
But the more I talk to the people who eventually became my colleagues at SAP, the more I realized just what an incredible opportunity it was. Here is a very established enterprise tech company who is looking to put a stake in the ground about how important it is to fund underrepresented founders. And this is years before other companies have done it. And so I was talking to them in 2017. And so this is pre me too, um, right. really, really forward thinking team. And a lot of this had to do with the chief strategy officer at the time, and also the CEO at the time who just had the foresight to say, this is just good business. There are great companies that are being overlooked because they don't have access to the right networks to get funding and to get go-to-market help. And so we can provide that. And so I found that it was an incredibly exciting opportunity to build a platform. And also it scratched my itch to build something from scratch. So I was able to get this program off the ground in New York. And that that eventually became like the hallmark of all the work that we were doing. And in not just in New York, but across North America. And um, I got the opportunity to lead basically our accelerators in both New York and San Francisco, and where we had a mandate where at least 40% of the companies we would work with were companies founded by underrepresented founders. And after doing 12 cohorts and 87 companies, like I'm really proud to say that almost 80% of the companies that we worked with fit that criteria. And these are all incredibly accomplished companies. I think I last checked a few weeks ago, I think collectively they've raised close to a billion dollars in venture funding. And um, and they're up and coming companies. I think seven or eight of them have already been acquired. And these are all C to series C companies that we worked with in enterprise tech and like an area where you normally don't see underrepresented founders, but here we were showing that it's not a pipeline issue, it's an access issue. I think it's like you said, it's so incredible to think that this was going on years before it was like, I feel like at this point, it's the expectation if companies aren't doing this, then it's more problematic than not. So I can imagine that in 2017, a big part of your role was not just like finding the talent and growing the talent, which is what I feel like a lot of the companies today do, but also building out that infrastructure. So making that decision, it's going to be 40% mandate, or it's going to be 60% mandate, or like what the cohort structure looks like, what that programming looks like. Was there any part of you that walks into this huge company, even with your incredible experience at that point and says like, I don't entirely know what I'm doing, but I'm going to have to figure it out? Oh, of course, of course. Like, And that's what I love about taking, that's what I really loved about taking that role because I had not spent too much time in true enterprise tech. Like, mm-hmm. Yes, the the businesses that I worked with while at McKinsey, they were more consumer facing, even though the business models were B2B. And um, same with the companies that we launched at Trigger, like Inside Hook, it's a consumer facing business, but we sell to advertisers, but it's still really consumer at the end of the day. And Fivo, we sell to sports and and live events uh, companies. And and, um, it's a software play, but wasn't like, hey, this is what's happening in AI and machine learning, or this is what's happening when it comes to future of work. I got to work with the companies across a whole slew of industries, mm-hmm. um, deploying a whole variety of different indus- uh, different technologies. I remember uh, first starting in 2018 with our first cohort, and one of the companies coming in is a company called Amber Data. And so now they provide 
basically a way so that you can search for the smart contracts that are being deployed and using Ethereum and understanding the blockchain. Like I did not have that opportunity ahead of right. time. So this was all a very steep learning curve when I first started or learning about supply chain technology, right? Or like robotics. Yeah. Um, and so, oh, it was compl- so much of it was very new to me. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting how you can still have those like huge moments of, oh my goodness, what am I doing at, at all parts of your career? But the other aspect that you mentioned was this, you know, this diversity from day one. And I think that that's, you know, that applies both to SAP, but also, of course, to these companies that were uh, joining the accelerators. So I wonder, how do you recommend that companies build diversity from day one, especially as now you are kind of launching your own ventures? How do you really embed that into the DNA of a company? I think it's something that literally starts from day one in terms of who do you choose on the team uh, in terms of the operators and what is it, what are their values and is diversity going to be at the core? So Mm -hmm. in terms of the businesses I'm looking to launch, I must say like my preference is to look for people who are going to be underrepresented. Why? Because, um, and I'll talk about it a little bit more, but in the field that I'm going to, those are the demographic segments within a large demographic segment that are, that are being overlooked. And I think it's important to reflect that in the leadership team that you have. So you're bringing in a perspective that's going to be different and of value. It's, it's a great piece of knowledge that I think can help people who are tuning in perhaps and are considering to become a founder or uh, or thinking about best practices. So, you know, throughout your career, what you've learned now, I'd love to kind of rapid fire ask you a few questions on what you think are best practices. What do you search for in a founder or a co-founder? So... Obviously, besides the subject matter expertise, like I'm really looking for someone who has incredible vision and also someone who can be complementary to you in terms of your skills. I think like for me, I know I'm not as technical, but I know that I am good at spotting large opportunities, but to have somebody who is technical who can vet things that way think about things that way is some the type of skills that i'd be looking for but at the end of the day it's also incredibly important to think about how do you see eye to eye in terms of how you work together how do you want to build the company and it's it's essentially a marriage right it's a business Mm -hmm. marriage and and so you have to be thinking about values at the core When a company is in its early stages, what are the best ways to demonstrate product market fit? You know, I think that the most important part is because I've been thinking about B2B and enterprise tech is actually having customers from the get go that you work Mm. with. That's the best way of demonstrating it. Like, is are you solving a problem that is great enough so that customers want to pay attention to it even before you had a product in mind. And and then you can use that, like essentially have a user group of customers to work with to craft what that is. If you get that right, you have automatic product market fit because you've already been engaging, engaging customers from the get-go. I don't get what some companies do, which is like, yeah, we think it's a good idea. And they build the product out, but they don't test it. 
Mm-hmm. I just feel like it's, it's, it has to go hand in hand. It has to be something that you incorporate from the very beginning. Yeah, and it fully ignores the principles of like even agile software development when you just spend all this time and resources and then you have this ta-da moment and realize that actually no one's interested. I mean, there's so much research out there that shows like there are better ways to avoid that. Yeah. What are some non-traditional metrics that you look at or fascinate you? Oh, I don't know if they're super non-traditional, but I'm constantly thinking about happiness when it comes to employees Mm -hmm. and your team, because I really think that it starts from there. Like, is your team happy? Are they stretching themselves? Are they being motivated? Because if you don't have that, that you won't be able to build things. So I'm very, very much people leader and just thinking about how is your team doing? And are they evangelists for what it is that you would like to do actually is is something that is critically important. So I look at that. And then I look at obviously customers and, and what is the MPS? Are they repeating? And what also those disgruntled or disengaged customers? Why are they that way? Because that could teach you so much. And so that could be more Uh, qualitative evidence in addition to quantitative evidence. And I think that that's the type of metric that you would want to look for and and data that you want to incorporate so that you can address and just improve. All great pieces of advice. So I guess now it's time for us to talk about you as a founder, because for the last six months or so, you have been in stealth mode. And so before we dive into the questions around your actual venture, I'd love to hear how is it going being back on this side of things and what new perspectives have you gained since doing this from the last time around? I'm about five months in to trying to start this new venture in what I'm calling the longevity slash aging space, or I should say ageless space mm-hmm. and um, silver tech. I've been really interested in disrupting aging for a very, very long time. I actually started when I was in college and I was a behavioral neuroscience major. And so I was lucky enough to spend a couple of years in an Alzheimer's lab in, at Mass General Hospital in Boston. And I also volunteered in a nursing home. And I, I used to bring dogs from on campus to this nursing home to cheer up the residents. And I remember thinking just how sad many of the residents were and how much they were just dependent upon our visits because they typically didn't have many visitors. And it just broke my heart. It broke my heart just to see how aging could be. And for a lot of people in these types of facilities, it's such a lonely experience. And I wanted to change that. And then 10 years ago at Trigger, one of the businesses that we never got off the ground was a media property focused on baby boomers. We just couldn't get the business model right. But back then, I was already convinced that this is a segment that is overlooked. It's not being served. So many, so many companies are obsessed about youth culture, but there's not enough on people who are older adults. And, and now we see it upon us. We've seen what the pandemic has done, especially to people who are older. We also are seeing definitely the graying of our population. We're in the midst of baby boomers now retiring, right? We're about halfway through that. I think another 40 million baby boomers will be retiring in the next 10 years. And the way that 
the population is is morphing, we're going to start looking like what Japan has been looking like over the last couple of decades. So it's really a graying of the population. Yet we don't talk about this as a society. And ageism is probably the most accepted form of discrimination. And after spending so much time working with women and people of color and LGBTQ founders, one of the types of founders I also wanted to work with were founders who are older, because I'm like, that's, you know, that is, that's like the, the, like an area where actually a lot of successful companies are, are made by founders who are in their 40s and above. But there is such an obsession if you just like look at, at Business Insider or TechCrunch right. about Forbes the, 30 under 30. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. And then I think about how we can be really disrupting how ageism is perceived, how um, we can really just tackle ageism as a form of discrimination, and also come up with brands and products and services that are focused on the older adult population. If you say, hey, you know, what are some brands and services and products, or, you know, targeting millennials, we can name so many, right? Like, right. like, we can name so many, we could probably spend all night doing that. Same with actually parenting brands and, and totally. like, you know, children's and infant brands. But if I were to say, hey, Zoya, can you name a brand that is focused on the older adult? Can you name any? You know, and the ones I can name, they're, I, I hate to say it, but they, they feel very sad because it's like, oh, you know, brands that helped my grandfather, you know, at the time of his passing, things like that. Or like when my dad was passing of cancer, I can think about some of like the supplements he was given. But none of that evokes the kinds of feelings when you think about, you know, those millennial brands or those baby brands. And of course, ageism does have a different conversation about it. But does it have to be that conversation? And my hunch is no, it does not. <laughs> no, it does not. And a lot of people who are older, if you ask them, I mean, I, I have some friends who are just a few years older, but they're getting their AARP cards. Like at 50, mm -hmm, you get your mm -hmm. AARP card. And the first thing that they say is, what is this? Why am I getting this? Like, I don't belong to this group because it's almost mm. like, oh, no, you are not part of this group that's going to be discounted, that you're not productive or useful anymore, which is could be so far from the truth. And I, I think a lot of people who are older, I, I have friends in their 70s are thinking about what's next. I think about my parents, they're 79 and 82. They still work and they're thinking about what's next. They're not right. thinking about you know what, I'm just going, just put me out somewhere and I'm just going to wait around and, and just, you know, pass my days. They're about, I want to make the most of every single day. And that is what I think we're all going to want also when we're at that age too. So that's mm -hmm. what I'm looking to do. So it is coming up with brands, these services, that these products that'll enable you to make the most to have as vibrant, as flourishing a time well into um, old age. So many of us will be lucky enough to be centenarians. And mm. so like, I want us to be thinking about what's next up until the day that we just can't. And so I'm, I'm launching right now a series of businesses focused on this space. And um, the first two businesses have been, they're getting close to formation but one is like around the future of work. The other one is around senior housing. There's so much to do in these spaces. If you think about it, think about all the people who are retiring. 
they actually, 74% of people who are retiring expect to keep working after Mm -hmm. they retire. So it's not truly retirement. It's just more like, I just want to go from 100% to something more flexible. And I actually think that the term retirement needs to be retired. (laughs) Like I've, I've always thought that it was an odd concept ever since I was young and walking down like the aisles and, you know, the hallmark and the card shops and wondering like, why would you send a card to someone to say, hey, congratulations, you're not working anymore. Like, doesn't that give you purpose? Doesn't that make you, doesn't that give you your identity? It just, it felt very sad to me. And I I always, I just couldn't understand it. And I still, to this day, just feel like there is so much that you can be doing. And that's, there's so much that people want to be doing. So I'd like to help people figure that out. And um, if you think about just the aging population, there's, there's going to be a whole slew of people who've been completely overlooked. So people who are not as well to do people who are from different racial and ethnic backgrounds, like so right. much of the, the grain population, we've only thought about one mold. I mean, we're talking about a segment that is incredibly heterogeneous. And so I would like to see women, people of color, like being addressed at the core in, in these types of businesses. Your career and background has really been built around media and technology. And I guess when I think about the way that my grandma uses technology, it's really been about my brother, my mom and I just hacking into her iPad to let her press on specific things or minimize functionality. So when you're thinking about innovation in this space, and I know you're thinking about it from a very you know broad and varied lens, how do you balance this conundrum of how can we use this technology and add capabilities on versus, you know, this demographic set of needs and actually certain limitations that come with age, but also I'm sure your own desire to explore some new and exciting technologies. Well, I think that people nowadays, there are a lot of older adults who are incredibly technology savvy and Mm -hmm. they are using the iPad. Like I think about my, my mother-in-law and my father-in-law, they're 88 and 86. And we gave them an iPad probably like around eight, nine years ago. And it's one of the most used pieces of equipment. In yeah, 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 us too. And you think about, of course, like the use of FaceTime and, and just being able to, to communicate with people. There's a lot that you can do with it. And I think there's also a lot about bringing that type of technology to a different level so that you can, and it, I'm, I'm really focused on aging in place. And so I feel like as long as you can to be able to be as independent and have agency um, and to live in a place where you can really just thrive is is quite important. But um, technology is going to enable people to live longer in these places right. with um, before going into a care facility. Right. I think the average age now or I think like a lot of senior living um, operators have been looking at the segment was more like 75 is the entry point. Actually, nowadays, it's more like 88 to 90, because people are living longer, they're living healthier, and they're more vibrant. And, and then if you think about that, actually, people in their 70s, like, look at our president, right? Mm-hmm. He's pretty tech savvy. Yeah, he can like, figure it out. <laughs> he can figure it out. Look at Tony Fauci. He's 80. Mm-hmm talk about somebody like who's incredibly technology savvy. So I feel like we need to burst stereotypes because people are just like, well, no, you know, when I think about the aging market, I want to make sure that we are giving them things because they're becoming invalids. Like, no, this is about giving them things so that they can continue to thrive. And so it could be 
doing meal deliveries, but making that so that it's like a normal course of, of choice and setting that up or like setting up telemedicine, telehealth visits, being able to do things like I want to regulate the temperature in my home, but not with something that is so smart that it's telling me when I'm supposed to be warm, when I'm supposed to be cold, but I just want to be able to have agency over when I feel hot and cold or, you know, right. that, that's like what I'm thinking a lot about. And it's, it's less about this, like, let's take care of people who are older, more about let's give them the tools so that they can continue to thrive. I love that. And I, and I do think so much of what you're saying is definitely, you know, how do we take that technology? How do we change constructs? But more importantly, how do we change our emotional capability to process this changing era, this changing industry, and really emotionally innovate too, which I, I think is incredibly exciting. So before I do let you go, I'd love to ask you one last innovation question, and that is, where do you see yourself and your industry one month from now, one year from now, and 10 years from now? Oh, wow. Okay. I love that. So uh, where I see at least myself in one month's time, I don't think the industry is going to change that much, <laughs> but uh, I hope to be finalizing the uh, the fundraising for the ventures that I'm doing. <laughs> in terms of like one year's time, I'd like to see basically the first two businesses launched. And in terms of the industry, I'd like more entrepreneurs in this space. I'd like people to be talking about the space more. And we're starting to see that. Like we've seen Papa become a unicorn a couple of weeks ago. We've seen Honor also do the same. And we're going to see more and more of that. And in terms of 10 years time, I want to have been a part of the change that's going to transform how people think about aging. I don't want people to think anymore like, oh, that experienced worker, like we just need to show them the door. Actually, they are an incredible source of institutional wealth and knowledge. And we should truly treat them like the wise people that they are. Just like, Completely. you know, when you're in a tribe and your your elder is truly like an elder, like, you know, your your Yoda. Like that's what I want <laughs> that's what I want people to to see and to change like and, and to embrace and and cherish the experience older adults in our lives. Thank you so, so much for coming on today. I'm left super inspired by today's conversation, and I know our listeners will too. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Win Win, brought to you by Win, Women in Innovation, and myself, Zoya Kozakov. If you enjoy this podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit womenininnovation.co to learn more about our organization, programming, and other opportunities. And remember, when women innovate, we all win.